Ephesians 4. And if you need a Bible, get these fellows' attention, and they'll get one to you. And it is marked in that area, the book of Ephesians, so you can just open right to that. We've all had to fill out uh, paperwork for the government or when you're in a doctor's office or if you're applying for a job, paperwork that includes demographic questions, things like are you male or female, married or single, children, age, are you employed? Those are all questions that relate to our situation. And then there are other matters about us that relate to our our struggles. There's our situation and there are our struggles. And so if you filled out a complete profile of yourself, it might include those struggles also. So it might include I'm an alcoholic or I'm divorced. We tend to closely associate our situation and our struggle with our identity, with who we are. And so when we meet someone, we might ask, what do you do? Because their line of work is determined to be an important part of who they are. Or if we're telling someone about ourselves, we might at some point tell them, in this very language, I'm an alcoholic, or I'm a divorcee. We do this because we tend to mistake our situation or our struggle with our identity. I'm an engineer. I'm a pastor. I'm single. I'm 30-something. I'm a survivor of fill-in-the-blank. I'm a divorcee. I'm an alcoholic. But you see, friends, for those who have embraced the gospel, The most important thing about them is not, is not their situation or their struggle. But rather it's their identity in Christ. Because he gives us a completely new identity. And so the Bible says, in Christ there is neither male nor female. So knowing if you're male or female is an important thing about you. But in Christ, the most important thing is our identity in him. In Christ, the Bible tells us, 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 1, you have been betrothed to one husband, Christ. In Christ, the most important work you do is the mission that he has called you to. But if we're not careful, Christian can can become just one more identifier on our life's profile along with everything else. And so my profile is I'm, ma- I'm male, I'm married, have children, I'm 49, employed, and in addition to all of that, I'm a Christian. But the gospel, now hear this, the gospel is about transformation. It is not just an addition to what you were. It changes who you are and how you see yourself, so that all the situations and the struggles that I have, of all of that, I am first a Christian. And the fact that I'm a Christian, and the fact that I belong to Christ, permeates the rest of my profile. 
My identity is not my situation. My identity is not my struggle. My identity is my union with Jesus Christ. And so really, I'm not first a divorcee. I'm a child of God who's been divorced. Or I'm not first an alcoholic. I'm a child of God who struggles with drink. Jesus is not an additive to our lives. He transforms our lives. Now I'm reminding you of that. Or perhaps you're hearing that for the first time. Because we are in a section in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, that is part of a three-chapter section, chapters 4, 5, and 6, the end of the book. And it tells us how to live because of who we are. And so it's been a while, but back in chapter 4 and verse 1, you may recall that we are told, in view now of all that we've seen in chapters 1 through 3, I urge you then, it says in verse 1, to live a life worthy, that is consistent with the calling you've received. And that calling includes my identity in Christ, which the writer has taken three chapters to delineate for us. Now, based upon that, live out your identity in these various spheres of life. As a husband, as a wife, as a father, as a mother, as a child, as an employee, as a church member. Now, if we dive right into all of those imperatives, all of those commands about how we're to live without remembering that that is living out who we are, not just a list of stuff we're supposed to do, then we'll indeed take the additive approach to the Christian life. It's just adding Jesus to all of the stuff that I've got going on. But the reason the Bible structures itself the way it does, the book of Ephesians is structured the way that it is, is in order for us to see that in all of those things that I do, in all of those profile items that I have, father, mother, child, employee, church member, in all of those, the umbrella covering them all, permeating them all, is my identity in Christ. Now, we've had several weeks in a mini-series that I just concluded last week. That series was called Full Service, and it was taken from just the end of chapter 4 and verse 28, where we're told that we should work with our own hands for the purpose of so that we might have to give to those who are in need. And so I spent several weeks talking about that having in order to give to those that are in need. So it's been a few weeks since we've been looking at the verses in chapter 4. And with your indulgence, I want to take one more week before we jump into chapter 4 and verse 29. And I want to take that one more week to go through the stuff that I have on the sheet that's inserted in your program, the outline there. Got a number of blanks there that we're going to fill in together. I'm going to put those on the, on the screen as we go and explain them as we do. I'm doing this because I want to rehearse the fullness of the gospel with you so that we look then at these commands beginning next week and the instructions given in chapters 4 through 6 in light of our identity in Christ. So I want to give you the good news of the gospel in just a bit, but bear with me for a moment because the Bible's full of bad news. The Bible is full of bad news. 
but it's full of bad news for a good purpose. It tells us our ultimate problem, but it tells us our ultimate problem not just to leave us there, wallowing in the difficulty and the problem. It tells us our ultimate problem so it can give us the solution. So there's much that's negative, there's much that's dark, there's much that's bad in the Bible, but it is all for a good purpose, to point us to the solution. And it tells us that the reason for suffering and much that goes on in our situations and our struggles is because we are all born estranged, separated from the God who made us. We come into this world by nature separated from God and we live our lives and we live with others who live their lives displaying the various ways that these consequences of this estrangement are, are played out. Or to put it another way, we're just all born sinners. And the Bible teaches that we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. You see, I don't become a sinner the first time I sin. The first time I sin is simply displaying what I already was. I come into this world, you come into this world with a, a sin nature. So sin is not only what we do, sin is what we are. And therefore, as the Bible lays out this bad news, this, this difficulty that explains why we're in the situations and struggles that we're in, sin is a bigger problem than just my struggles. Sin is at the root of all human behavior and the misery that follows from it. And the epitome of that misery is death. Why is it that nearly two people... Worldwide, two people die every second. Physical death is the result of spiritual death, the Bible teaches. And so it says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages, the consequences, the results of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now you may remember because you've heard me say death means separation. So physical death, that is, the separation of the spirit from the body occurs because there's been a prior death, a spiritual death, which is the separation of the individual from God. And so all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and therefore are estranged, separated from God are dead spiritually, and as a result of being dead spiritually, we will all one day die physically. Before coming to Christ, the Bible teaches we're dead men walking. We're alive physically, but we're separated. We are dead spiritually. So here's what Scripture says. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. So notice, you were dead, you lived. How's that? You were dead in your sins. You were dead spiritually, separated from God. But you were physically alive and you were playing that out in your life. 
And you might have been a relatively good person and had a relatively good life. Even when you were physically alive, spiritually dead. Relatively, meaning relative to other people, compared to other people. But the passage I had on the screen a moment ago says, all have sinned and fall short of, not relative to other people, fall short of what? The glory of God. And so even if I had a relatively good life, physically alive but spiritually dead, I'm still separated from the God who made me. After reading a good book on the gospel some time ago, someone said to me after they read it, I always wondered why God would send people to hell. But now I see it's because we deserve it. Our sin means that we deserve physical and eternal death, separation. And it's bad enough, friends, the bad news is bad enough that we're powerless to do anything to rescue, deliver, or save ourselves. Because we're dead, if we're to be given spiritual life then, think with me, then where's it going to have to come from? It's going to have to come from outside of you, is it not? It's going to have to come from a source outside of ourselves. But that's the best news. That's the gospel. That's the good news. The word gospel is literally good news. And against the backdrop of man's desperate and hopeless condition, it's the greatest news imaginable. That the God against whom we have sinned, and therefore from whom we are separated, has done what we could not do in order to reconcile us to himself. And so what is the gospel? It is this. It is the glorious message that God's grace, it's going to require grace. God's going to have to do this. God's going to have to, as we're going to see, initiate this. God's grace has overcome our sin through the life, the death, and the resurrection of His Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. So picture it this way. Picture someone who's swimming in the ocean. And they've drifted away from shore and they're caught in a violent storm. He's thrashing around trying to find the strength to hang on, but he's going down for the third time. And just then, as if out of nowhere, comes a life preserver. And this beleaguered swimmer grabs on and is pulled ashore and is saved, is rescued, is delivered. Now, no doubt we would be grateful to the one who saved us in such dire circumstances. But did you know the gospel is more marvelous than that? You see, because the Bible teaches we're not going down for the third time. We're face down floating on top. Absolutely lifeless and without any ability to help ourselves or to respond to help from somebody else. You see, if I'm, if I'm dead, you can throw a life preserver, I can't get it. Because I'm dead. And that's what the Bible teaches about us. That's our hopeless condition. But here's the good news. God fishes our spiritually dead bodies out of the ocean and breathes life into us. 
And how does he do that? The Bible tells us that he does two things to the spiritually dead when he saves us, delivers us, rescues us. You notice I keep saying those together? Because we in our, give our testimonies. Tony gave his testimony. I was saved. That means I've been rescued. That means I've been delivered. And so like that, that dead swimmer now, who's going to be delivered, is going to be rescued, but it's going to be rescued after death as life is breathed into him. And God does two things to the spiritually dead when he saves or delivers us from our dead, sinful condition. The first one is this, and I have it on your sheet. He calls us. One of the synonyms for a Christian in the Bible that is a, a genuine believer in Jesus Christ is that she's been called. Notice. To all who are in Rome, who are loved by God and called. Called to be saints. Now, depending on what tradition you've grown up in, you see the word saint, you say, that ain't me, I know who those people are. There's a whole pantheon of really... Holy people. But the Bible uses the word saint, just of regular, ordinary, run-of-the-mill followers of Jesus. Called. The Bible says those he predestined, he also called down at, down at the bottom. And in the middle, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called. So there's no doubt that Christians are called in a special way by God. And he's the one who takes the initiative in this because we're spiritually dead. Jesus said, many are called, but few are chosen. That is, every time the gospel, the good news is proclaimed and people hear it, those people, everyone who hears it, those people are being called to believe in Jesus for their salvation. So many are called, but because of our dead condition, we don't respond unless God does a special work in us. And that's why that line to the left, first line to the left in your outline says, not just calling, but effectual calling or effective calling, or it accomplishes its work in the heart of the individual on whom God moves. So every time the gospel goes out, there's a general call to respond. But God does a special work in some. And if you come to Christ, at a point in time, He did a special work in your heart for that call to be effective. The Bible describes the difference between the general group that hears the call and those who respond to it because it's effective in their hearts. The difference is described this way. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being rescued, delivered, saved, it's the power of God. We preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, and I want you to notice now, those who are being saved and those God have, has called are the same group of people. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The difference between those who are effectually called, that the work is accomplished in them, is that they see the gospel in a radically different way than those who are not called. 
To the one it's foolishness. To the other one it is wisdom. To those not called it's foolishness. To those in whom God has done a work it's the power of God. The difference between those that are called by God and those who simply hear words is that God opens their eyes and ears so they see and hear the gospel in a radically different way. And that's what's being referred to in this famous passage in 1 Corinthians 2. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Now you notice that is in quotation marks. It's a quote from the first part of your Bible. Most of the time when you've heard that quoted, it's been, boy, heaven's going to be great because nobody knows what it's going to be like. It's just going to be marvelous. Well, heaven will be great and it will be marvelous. But in this context, as I read further, the context is about the difference between the person on whom the Spirit is moved and the person who has not had that work. And our eyes have to be opened because no one naturally sees or hears as they, as they ought. And God has to do this work. So no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind is conceived, but God has revealed it. By His Spirit, the man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to Him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And so two people hear the same message and respond differently. Why? Because many are called and few are chosen. The difference is the work of God on the mind. And that's why Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice. When that happens, the spiritually blind see. And the spiritually deaf hear. And they respond. And so you notice on your outline that God's grace delivers us, rescues us then. Delivers us from the persuasion of sin. I am now, you are now, because of the Spirit of God moving on your heart when you heard the gospel message, at some point you become persuaded. This is true. I need this. It delivers us from the persuasion of sin and gives us a new perspective, a new view then. I see it differently. I see it radically differently. So this means, friends, Salvation, deliverance, rescue is God's initiative. And it has a number of applications for us in in ministry and in Christian life. As we give the gospel to those in our workplaces and in our families and in our neighborhoods, we need to remember we're dependent on Him for the results because He has to move on the hearts of people. And that's why we pray to Him for effectiveness, Lord, save so-and-so. Why? Why do I ask the Lord to save them? Because it ain't ultimately up to them. God has to move on their hearts and do an effective work in this. So why should we move forward as a church and as individual Christians with great optimism as we carry out the Lord's work and preach the gospel? Here's why. Because in Acts chapter 18 and verse 10, Paul was fearful to go into the city of Corinth 
The Lord appeared to him and the Lord said, Paul, fear not. Preach. Here's why. I have many people in this city. God has people in Brownstown and Woodhaven and Trenton. And how will they be identified? His, his word will go out and his sheep will hear his voice as his spirit moves upon them. And so God takes the initiative, and it's humbling for us. It should be, because now what's the difference between you and the person who as yet hasn't responded? It's because you knew a good deal when you saw one? No, but for the grace of God, right? How long does, does God call his sheep? Well, one of his sheep may be experienced the general call many, many, many times. But there comes a point in time where God effectively moves on the mind of that individual and opens his heart and his ears. It may be many months, it may be many years, but they will respond. It means that when we give the gospel, you know, friends, we don't have to close the deal quickly then. We're not salespeople. We give the gospel. And we pray to God to give the results then. And so effectual calling delivers us from the persuasion of sin. It gives us a new perspective. God does something else. God not only, in His grace, takes the initiative in calling us, He then takes the initiative in making us fully alive spiritually. And that's what that next word on your outline is, regeneration. Calling gives ability to see what we need. Regeneration gives the ability to receive what we need. And so prior to being effectively called and my eyes being opened, my ears being opened, I may have said to myself, as many of you may have said, I'm, I'm good enough, I don't need that. But God moves on you such that you now see what you need. He's changed your perspective. Or you may not have believed certain aspects of the gospel, but God moves on your mind so that you have now been persuaded otherwise. You have a new perspective. But even with all of that, I still now need to respond to the offer. I see I need it. I have a changed perspective, but I have to receive the gift that's offered. And I have no power to do so. And regeneration gives you that. To regenerate means to impart life. And God imparts life to those he calls so that they can respond. Jesus said in this famous encounter with a religious man, Nicodemus, some of you are familiar with it in John 3, and Jesus shocked this man when he said to him, at the very beginning of this encounter, he says to him, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Do you see how I've highlighted there? No one can see. That is, it's not just no one will see. <laughs> it's nobody can. Because they don't have the ability. Because they don't have spiritual life to respond to the offer that God makes. Unless he is born again. Given spiritual life. That word born again is literally born 
from above. Unless he is given life from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So what does God do? He imparts life. God does what we cannot And Ephesians 2 tells us, thanks be to God, because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, notice this, made us alive. That is, regenerated us. He made us alive. When? When we were dead. In transgressions. It is, by grace, you have been delivered, rescued, saved. And so in effectual call, We're rescued from the persuasion of sin. We're given a new perspective. And now in regeneration, we're delivered. We're rescued from the power of sin. So that now God gives us an ability we did not have. Because we have a new heart. Now, a new heart that is able and willing and desirous to receive what God has. A new heart that desires to serve Him and obey Him and respond to Him. You know, in Christian ministry, very often, we deal with issues in folks' lives that should have been settled at the time they came to Jesus. Now, here's what I mean. If you claim to know Jesus Christ, then you claim to have heard His voice and a work has been done upon your heart and you are now willingly following Him, imperfectly to be sure, as do I, but willingly following Him. And there is no doubt, and there should never be any doubt, to to whom I give my allegiance. It is to Him, it is His voice that I obey. And what I need is help and assistance from God's Word, by His Spirit, from His people, in order to do that. But there should never be any doubt that I'm a follower of Jesus. Why? Because He has regenerated me. He has given me life. He has made me willing and desirous to serve Him and to obey Him. That's why when people are baptized through our church, if you've been to our baptisms, you'll remember I asked them two questions. Are you trusting Christ alone for forgiveness of sins? And secondly, Do you promise to obey Him all the days of your life? Why? Because if you've truly been given this new life, this spiritual life, you want to obey Him. You you are happy to commit to that. And sometimes people lie about that. Don't they? Yeah, I promise to follow Jesus all my life. Doesn't always happen that way, does it? And over time, you see who has really been given life and who has not. But those who have been given life have now been delivered from the power of sin and given a new heart that issues forth in the way they live. God does a number of other things that I'm going to bounce through as quickly as I can in the good news of the gospel. We talk and we sing and we preach, and rightly so, of Jesus' cross and Him dying for us. And on the cross, Jesus paying the penalty for our sin. And he did that, as we will be reminded. He paid the penalty for all of our sin, past, present, and future. But hear this, friends. He could only do that if he were a perfect substitute for us. 
And he was only a perfect substitute, dying in our place, taking the penalty that belonged to me and belonged to you. He could only do that if he lived an absolutely perfect, sinless life of righteousness. And so it is true to say Jesus died for me, but it is also true to say that Jesus lived for me. And so when the Spirit of God moves upon my heart and now empowers me, enables me, giving me a new heart to respond... When I do that, believing who Jesus is and what he did, the penalty he paid on my behalf is applied to me. And the life that he lived is applied to me as well. Thanks be to God. And the Bible's word for that is justification. God, the righteous judge, declares me just, right, before him, even though I'm still a sinner. My goodness. Because the life and death of Jesus is applied to me. Notice what the Bible says. When a man works, what he gets, the results, the wages, are not credited as a gift, but it's an obligation. But to the one, to the man who does not work, because he can't do anything. He doesn't work for it. He trusts God. And he trusts, he relies on, he believes in God who does what? Justifies who? <laughs> the people who cleaned up their act. The people who got it together. The people who will go to the pearly gates and Peter will say, why should I let you in? And you give your laundry list of all of your good stuff. Uh-uh. He justifies, he declares right before him those who are actually wicked. And his faith, that trust, that belief in who Jesus is and what he has done is credited as righteousness to me and to you. And so God effectually calls and he imparts life and he justifies. And as he justifies... He indeed delivers from the penalty of sin, which can only be done because he had his perfect life. And he gives us a new record. I mean, consider if you were in jail for a crime. And really, from the Bible's perspective, in our sin, we're criminals before God. If you, just, if you just committed, I told my class Wednesday night, if you just commit three sins every day, and you remember sins are... Just stuff you think, stuff you say, not just stuff you do, or stuff you should have said that you didn't, stuff you should have done that you didn't, okay? So three a day, that's a bargain. So if you live an average life, you commit about 80,000 capital offenses that God could summarily execute us for, but does not. So we're, we're prisoners, we're criminals. The penalty is paid, but when that prisoner gets out of prison, he still has a record. But what God is saying is, the penalty has been paid, and your record has been removed. Thanks be to God. God's grace delivers us from the persuasion of sin. He gives us a new perspective, the power of sin and a new heart, and the penalty of sin and a new record. 
We came into this world as sinners, estranged, separated from God, which means God was not our Father. When we came into this world, we were not in His family. But when He moves on our hearts and we respond to the gospel message and we trust, we believe in the one who can do what we can't do for ourselves, the Lord Jesus Christ, when that happens, the Bible says another thing happens, the fourth thing on your list. He adopts us into His family. And John, who wrote the Gospel of John in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, says in his first letter, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. And he goes on to say, as if he just said, I can't believe I just wrote that, he's saying. And he goes on to then say, and that is what we are. I cannot believe I'm a child of God. I'm in his family. He's my father. I'm his son. And the Bible actually teaches this notion of adoption. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, for the purpose of redeeming those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. Because your sons... God has sent forth His Spirit, the Spirit of His Son, into our hearts, and we cry, Abba, Father. He was not your father, but now He's Abba. It's an Aramaic word. Closely, close English equivalent is Daddy. And so I now not only have a relationship in God's family, I have a close relationship with this God from whom I was estranged, adopted into His family. Let me just make a comment about that and two more. I'll try to go quickly. Are you all warm? Stay awake. We're adopted into God's family. This is one of the reasons that, friends, it's a mistake to divide up the church regularly along demographic lines. The singles do their thing. The seniors do their thing. The teenagers do their thing. And we're always separated from each other in our churches very often. But we are one family. And whether you even have a human family, whether your parents are still alive, whether you were, whether you were orphaned, whether you're widowed, whether you've had children or not, you are part of the most important family in the universe. And we need to emphasize that regularly. Now, there are special needs that we all have in certain circumstances and struggles. And therefore, we have ministries to try to, to, try to help with those. But understand that wherever you are, whatever your demographic, you are part of the family of God. And in the way we structure our churches, we should emphasize that marvelous thing regularly. God does two more things for us. God's grace delivers us. I didn't tell you what he does in adoption, did I? He gives you a new position. And that results in a new family. Okay, so I'm going to heaven. I got a new record. There is no doubt that I will spend eternity with Jesus. None. Not because of me, not because I have confidence in my future performance, but because I have confidence 
that the one who has begun a good work in me will be faithful to complete it. And so he finishes what he starts. And when he calls you out of the world and and to himself, he begins a work that will continue in you until he calls you home and glorifies you. And that word is what we have fifthly on the left side. He sanctifies us. What's that mean? Well, the Bible just says straight out, it's God's will that you should be, and the word sanctified means set apart, be different. And so God begins a work in you now, experientially, so that you are gradually being conformed to the image of Jesus, being set apart from the world. As Tony testified, things that I didn't even notice before I start noticing now. Right? Why? Because God's at work. And He continues that work. And so the Bible says, He's begun a good work in you. He will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And that's called sanctification. And in sanctification, God's grace delivers us from the practice of sin and gives us a new life. And then lastly, God who completes what he begins is going to bring it all the way to completion until what we call glory or heaven. When we will be fully like him. He started this work, he will finish this work, and it will finish in eternity. It's called glorification, as you see on your sheet. And here's what the Bible says about it. Dear friends, now we are the children of God. And we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We shall be fully sanctified, fully set apart. We will be glorified. We'll be like Jesus. Thanks be to God. The Bible says that this guarantee is so certain that those he predestined, that would be an eternity past, he called. Those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he's glorified. You've heard me say before, you've got four things there, predestined, called, justified, glorified. Three on that list have already happened, but all four are written in the past tense. How is that? That fourth one, glorified, hasn't happened yet. How do you write that in the past tense? Here's why. Because God already knows it's going to happen. And your glorification is as good as done as if it already happened in the mind of God. If you have been called and you have been justified, you will be, because of God's grace, glorified. So what's the definition of the gospel? Well, first let me tell you what glorification does. We'll be delivered, rescued, saved from the presence of sin. Given a new home. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, and what's the rest of it? The new has come. And the good news is that God gives us a new perspective and heart and record and family and life and home. That should compel us, motivate us to give our lives for Him. And transform. He's transforming us. We're not just adding Jesus on now to the father you already were or the husband you already were. 
but He's transforming your objectives and your allegiances and your desires. All now redirected toward the One who made you and who died for you. The original purpose for which you were placed on this earth is now being reoriented in your life. That's the good news. And when we look at what the Bible says about what we must do then, it's always in light of who we've become. These new creatures in Christ. The gospel is the glorious message. God's grace has overcome our sin through the life, death, and resurrection of His Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We'll finish by thanking the Lord for His grace to us. If you've come to Jesus, you thank Him. Because He's done that work. He called you. He regenerated you. He justified you. He adopted you. He's sanctifying you. He will glorify you. If you have never been reconciled to your God, you can do that right now. You see, friends, the general call has gone out. Is God pulling at your heart, telling you, persuading you, this is what you need? And if you say, you know what? For the first time, I see that's what I need. I have new eyes. I have new ears. He enables you to respond, and here's how you respond. Acknowledge, realize, I'm a sinner. I may be a better sinner than other sinners. I'm a sinner. Recognize that Jesus died on the cross for you, but remember that's only effective because he lived for you. Repent. I'm going to give you my life. I'm going to follow you. Go your way, not my way. And you receive him into your life. You receive the gift that he's offering because you've been empowered now. He's empowering you to do that. And how do you do it? You ask for it. Lord, I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus died for my sin. 